Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Anthony Boucher. They bite. There was no path, only the almost vertical ascent. Crumbled rock for a few yards, with the roots of sage finding their scanty life in the dry soil. Then jagged outcroppings of crude crags, sometimes with accidental footholds, sometimes with overhanging and untrustworthy branches of greasewood, sometimes with no way to climbing but the leverage of your muscles and the ingenuity of your balance. The sage was as drably green as the rock was drably brown. The only color was the occasional rosy spikes of a barrel cactus. Hugh Talon swung himself up onto the last pinnacle. It had a deliberate shaped look about it, a petrified fortress of Lilliputians, a Gibraltar of pygmies. Talon perched on its battlements and unslung his field glasses. The desert valley spread below him. The tiny cluster of buildings that was oasis, the exiguous cluster of palms that gave its name to the town and sheltered to his own tent and to the shack he was building. The dead-ended highway leading straightforwardly to nothing. The oiled roads diagramming the vacant blocks of an optimistic subdivision. Talent saw none of these. His glasses were fixed beyond the oasis and the town of oasis on the dry lake. The gliders were clear and vivid to him, and the uniformed men busy with them were as sharply and minutely visible as a nest of ants under glass. The training school was more than usually active. One glider in particular, strange to talent, seemed the focus of attention. Men would come and examine it and glance back at the older models in comparison. Only the corner of Talent's left eye was not preoccupied with the new glider. In that corner, something moved, something little and thin and brown as the earth. Too large for a rabbit, much too small for a man. It darted across that corner of vision and Talent found gliders oddly hard to concentrate on. He set down the bifocals and deliberately looked about him. His pinnacle surveyed the narrow, flat area of the crest. Nothing stirred. Nothing stood out against the sage and rock but one barrel of rosy spikes. He took up the glasses again and resumed his observations. When he was done, he methodically entered the results in the little black notebook. His hand was still white. The desert is cold and often sunless in winter, but it was a firm hand and as well trained as his eyes, fully capable of recording faithfully the designs and dimensions which they had registered so accurately. Nothing stood out against the sage and rock but one barrel of rosy spikes. He took up the glasses again and resumed his observations. When he was done, he methodically entered the results in the little black notebook. His hand was still white. The desert is cold and often sunless in winter, but it was a firm hand and as well trained as his eyes, fully capable of recording faithfully the designs and dimensions which they had registered so accurately. Once his hand slipped and he had to erase and redraw, 
leaving a smudge that displeased him. The lean brown thing had slipped across the edge of his vision again. Going toward the east edge, he would swear where that set of rocks jutted like spines on the back of a stegosaur. Only when his notes were completed did he yield to curiosity, and even then with a cynical self-reproach. He was physically tired, for him, an unusual state. From this daily climbing, and from clearing the ground for his shack to be, the eye muscles play odd, nervous tricks. There could be nothing behind the stegosaur's armor. There was nothing. Nothing alive and moving. Only the torn and half-plucked carcass of a bird, which looked as though it had been gnawed by some small animal. It was halfway down the hill. Hill in western terminology, though anywhere east of the Rockies it would have been considered a sizable mountain. The talent again had a glimpse of a moving figure. But this was no trick of a nervous eye. It was not little, nor thin, nor brown. It was tall and broad and wore a loud red and black lumber jacket. It bellowed, Talent! in a cheerful and lusty voice. Talent drew near the man and said, Hello. He paused and added, Your advantage, I think. The man grinned broadly. Don't know me. Well, I dare say ten years is a long time. In the California desert, ain't exactly Chinese rice fields. How's stuff? Still loaded down with secrets for sale. Talent tried desperately not to react to that shot, but he stiffened a little. Sorry, uh, the prospector getup had me fooled. Good to see you again, Morgan. The man's eyes narrowed. Just having my little joke, he smiled. Of course, you wouldn't have no serious reason for mountain climbing around a glider school now, would you? And you'd kind of need field glasses to keep an eye on the pretty birdies. I'm out here for my health. Talon's voice sounded unnatural, even to himself. Sure, sure. You were always in it for your health, and come to think of it, my own health ain't been none too good lately. I've got me a little cabin, way to hell and gone around here, and I do me a little prospecting now and again. And somehow it just strikes me, talent like maybe I hit a pretty good load today. Nonsense, old man. You, you can see... I'd sure hate to tell any of them army men out there in the field some of the stories I know about China and the kind of men I used to know out there. Wouldn't cotton to them stories a bit, the army wouldn't. But if I was to have a drink too many and get talkative-like... Tell you what, Talon suggested brusquely. It's getting near sunset now. My tent's chilly for evening visits. But drop round in the morning and we'll talk over old times. Is rum still your tipple? Sure is. Kind of expensive now, you understand. I'll lay some in. You can find the place easily, over by the oasis, and we might be able to talk about your prospecting, too. Talon's thin lips were set firm as he walked away. The bartender opened a bottle of beer and plunked it on the damp circled counter. There'll be twenty cents, he said, then added as an afterthought. Want a glass? Sometimes tourists do. Talent looked at the others sitting at the counter, the red-eyed and unshaven old man, the flight sergeant unhappily drinking a Coke. It was after army hours for beer. The young man with the long, dirty trench coat and the pipe and the new-looking brown beard, and saw no glasses. I guess I won't be a tourist, he decided. This was the first time Talent had had a chance to visit the desert sports spot. 
It was as well to be seen around in the community. Otherwise, people began to wonder and say, Who is that man out by the oasis? Why don't you ever see him any place? The sports spot was quiet that night. The four of them at the counter, two army boys shooting pool, and a half dozen of the local men gathered about a round poker table, soberly and wordlessly cleaning a construction worker whose mind seemed more on his beard than on his cards. You just passing through? The bartender asked sociably. Talon shook his head. I'm moving in. When the army turned me down for my lungs, I decided I'd better do something about it. Heard so much about your climate here, I thought I might as well try it. Sure thing, the bartender nodded. You take up until they started this glider school. Just about every other guy you meet in the desert is here for his health. Me, I had a sinus, and look at me now. It's the air. Talent breathed the atmosphere of smoke and beer suds, but didn't smile. I'm looking forward to miracles. You'll get them. Where about you staying? Over that way a bit, the agent called it the old Carker place. Talent felt the curious listening silence and frowned. The bartender had started to speak and then thought better of it. The young man with the beard looked at him oddly. The old man fixed him with red and watery eyes that had a faded glint of pity in them. For a moment, Talent felt a chill that had nothing to do with the night air of the desert. The old man drank his beer in quick gulps and frowned as though trying to formulate a sentence. At last, he wiped beer from his bristly lips and said, You wasn't aiming to stay in the adobe, was you? No, it's pretty much gone to pieces. Easier to rig me up a little shack than to try to make the adobe livable. Meanwhile, I've got a tent. That's all right, then, maybe. But mind you don't go poking around in that there adobe. I don't think I'm apt to. But why not? One of the beer? The old man shook his head reluctantly and slid from his stool to the ground. No, thanks. I don't really know as I... Yes? Nothing. Thanks all the same. He turned and shuffled to the door. Talent smiled. But, but why should I stay clear of the adobe? He called after him. The old man mumbled. What? They bite, said the old man, and went out shivering into the night. The bartender was back at his post. I'm glad he didn't take that beer you offered him, he said. Along about this time in the evening, I have to stop serving him. For once, he had the sense to quit. Talent pushed his own empty bottle forward. I hope I didn't frighten him away. Frighten? Well, mister, I think maybe that's just what you did do. He didn't want beer that sort of came, like you might say, from the old Carker place. Some of the old-timers here, they're funny that way. Talent grinned. Is it haunted? Not what you'd call haunted, no. No ghosts there that I ever heard of. He wiped the counter with a cloth and seemed to wipe the subject away with it. The flight sergeant pushed his coke bottle away, hunted in his pocket for nickels, and went over to the pinball machine. The young man with the beard slid onto his vacant stool. Hope old Jake didn't worry you, he said. Talent laughed. I suppose every town has its deserted homestead with a grisly tradition. But, but this sounds a little different. No ghosts, and they bite. Do you know anything about it? A little, the young man said seriously. A little, just enough to... Talent was curious. Have one on me and tell me about it. The flight sergeant swore bitterly at the machine. Beer gurgled through the beard. You see, the young man began. The desert's so big, you can't be alone in it. Ever noticed that? 
it's all empty and there's nothing inside, but there's always something moving over there where you can't quite see it. It's something very dry and thin and brown. Only when you look around, it isn't there. Ever see it? Optical fatigue, Talent began. Sure, I know. Every man to his own legend. There isn't a tribe of Indians hasn't got some way of accounting for it. You've heard of the Watchers. And the 20th century white man comes along and it's uh, optical fatigue. Only in the 19th century things weren't quite the same. And there were the Karkers. You've got a special localized legend. Call it that. You glimpse things out of the corner of your eye. Same like you glimpse lean, dry things out of the corner of your eye. You encase them in solid circumstance, and they're not so bad. That is known as the growth of legend, the folk mind in action. You take the carcass and the things you don't quite see and put them together, and they bite. Talent wondered how long that beard had been absorbing beer. And what were the carkers? prompted politely. Ever hear of Sonny Bean, Scotland, reign of James I and maybe the sixth, though I think Roughhead's wrong on that for once. Or let's be more modern. Ever hear of the Benders, Kansas in the 1870s? No. Ever hear of Procrustes or Polyphemus or Fee-Fi-Fo-Fum? There are ogres, you know. They're no legend. They're fact, they are. The inn where nine guests left for every ten that arrived. The mountain cabin that sheltered travelers from the snow. Sheltered them all winter until the melting spring uncovered their bones. The lonely stretches of road that so many passengers traveled halfway. You'll find them everywhere. All over Europe and pretty much in this country too before communications became what they are. Profitable business. And it wasn't just the profit. The benders made money, sure, but that wasn't why they killed all their victims as carefully as a kosher butcher. Sonny Bean got so he didn't give a damn about the profit. He just needed to lay more meat in for the winter. And think of the chances you'd have at an oasis. So, these uh, carkers of yours were, as you call them, ogres. Carkers, ogres, maybe they were benders. The benders were never seen alive, you know, after the townspeople found those curiously butchered bones. There's a rumor they got this far west. And the time checks pretty well. There wasn't any town here in the 80s, just a couple of Indian families, last of a dying tribe living on at the oasis. They vanished after the Karkers moved in, so that's not surprising. The white race is a sort of super-ogre anyway. Nobody worried about them, but they used to worry about why so many travelers never got across this stretch of desert. The travelers used to stop over at the Karkers, you see, and somehow they often never got any farther. Their wagons would be found maybe 15 miles beyond in the desert. Sometimes they found the bones too, parched and white, not looking, they said sometimes. And nobody ever did anything about these Karkers. Oh, sure. We didn't have King James VI, only, I still think it was first, to ride up on a great white horse for a gesture. But twice, army detachments came here and wiped them all out. Twice? One wiping out would do for most families. Talent smiled. Uh-huh. That was no slip. They wiped out the carcass twice because, you see, once didn't do any good. 
They wiped them out and still travelers vanished and still there were not bones. So they wiped them out again. After that, they gave up and people detoured the oasis. It made a longer or harder trip, but after all, Talent laughed. You mean to say these uh, carkers were immortal? I don't know about immortal. They somehow just didn't die very easy. Maybe if they were the benders, and I sort of like to think they were, they learned a little more about what they were doing out here in the desert. Maybe they put together what the Indians knew and what they knew, and it worked. Maybe whatever they made their sacrifices to understood them better out here than in Kansas. And what's become of them, aside from seeing them out of the corner of the eye? There's forty years between the last of the Carker history and this new settlement at the Oasis, and people won't talk much about what they learned here in the first year or so, only that they stay away from that old Carker adobe. They tell some stories. The priest says he was sitting in the confessional one hot Saturday afternoon and thought he heard a penitent come in. He waited a long time and finally lifted the gods to see was anybody there. Something was there, and it bit. He's got three fingers on his right hand now, which looks funny as hell when he gives a benediction. Talent pushed their two bottles toward the bartender. That yarn, my young friend, has earned another beer. How about it, bartender? Is he always cheerful like this, or is this just something he's improvised for my benefit? The bartender set out the fresh bottles with great solemnity. Me? I wouldn't have told you all that myself, but then, he's a stranger too, and maybe don't feel the same way we do here. For him, it's just a story. It's more comfortable that way, said the young man with the beard, and he took a firm hold on his beer bottle. But as long as you've heard that much, said the bartender, you might as well... It was last winter when we had that cold spell. You heard funny stories that winter. Wolves coming into prospectors' cabins just to warm up. Well, business wasn't so good. We don't have a license for hard liquor, and the boys don't drink much beer when it's that cold. But they used to come in anyway because we've got a big oil burner. So one night, there's a bunch of them in here. Old Jake was here, that, that you was talking to, and his dog Jigger. And I think I hear somebody else come in. The door creaks a little, but I don't see nobody. And the poker game's going, and we're talking, just like we're talking now. And all of a sudden, I hear a kind of noise like crack over there in that corner behind the jukebox near the burner. I go over to see what goes, and it gets away before I can see it very good. But it was little and thin, and it didn't have no clothes on. It must have been damn cold that winter. And what was the cracking noise? Talent asked dutifully. That, that was a bone. It must have strangled Jigger without any noise. He was a little dog. It ate most of the flesh, and if it hadn't cracked the bone for the marrow, it could have finished. You can still see the spots over there. The blood never did come out. There had been silence all through the story. Now suddenly all hell broke loose. The flight sergeant let out a splendid yell and began pointing excitedly at the pinball machine and yelling for his payoff. The construction worker dramatically deserted the poga game, knocking his chair over in the process, and announced lugubriously that these guys here had their own rules, see? Any atmosphere of Carker-inspired horror was dissipated. Talent whistled as he walked over to put a nickel in the jukebox. He glanced casually at the floor. Yes, there was a stain for what that was worth. He smiled cheerfully and felt rather grateful to the Carkers.
they were going to solve his blackmail problem very neatly. Talent dreamed of power that night. It was a common dream for him. He was a ruler of the new American corporate state that would follow the war, and he said to this man, come, and he came, and to that man, go, and he went, and to his servants, do this, and they did it. Then the young man with the beard was standing before him, and the dirty trench coat was like the robes of an ancient prophet. And the young man said, You see yourself riding high, don't you? Riding the crest of a wave, the wave of the future, you call it. But there is a deep, dark undertow that you don't see, and that's a part of the past, and the present, and even your future. There is evil in mankind that is blacker even than your evil and infinitely more ancient, and there was something in the shadows behind the young man, something little and lean and brown. Talent's dream didn't disturb him the following morning, nor did the thought of the approaching interview with Morgan. He'd fried his bacon and eggs and devoured them cheerfully. The wind had died down for a change, and the sun was warm enough so that he could strip to the waist while he cleared land for his shack, his machete glinted brilliantly as it swung through the air and struck at the roots of the brush. When Morgan arrived, his full face was red and sweating. It's cool over there, in the shade of the adobe talent suggested. We'll be more comfortable. And in the comfortable shade of the adobe, he swung the machete once and clove Morgan's full, red, sweating face in two. It was so simple. It took less effort than uprooting a clump of sage, and it was so safe. Morgan lived in a cabin way to hell and gone, and was often away on prospecting trips. No one would notice his absence for months, if then. No one had any reason to connect him with talent, and no one in Oasis would hunt for him in the Carker of haunted adobe. The body was heavy, and the blood dripped warm on talent's bare skin. With relief, he dumped what had been Morgan on the floor of the adobe. There were no boards, no flooring, just the earth. Hard, but not too hard to dig a grave in. And no one was likely to come poking around in this taboo territory and notice the grave. Let a year or so go by and the grave and the bones it contained would be attributed to the carkers. The corner of Talon's eye bothered him again. Deliberately, he looked about the interior of the adobe. The little furniture was crude and heavy, with no attempt to smooth down the strokes of the axe. It was held together with wooden pegs or half-rotted thongs. There were age-old cinders in the fireplace and the dusty shards of a cooking jar among them. And there was a deeply hollowed stone, covered with stains that might have been rust if stone rusted. Behind it was a tiny figure clumsily fashioned of clay and sticks. It was something like a man, and something like a lizard, and something like the things that flit across the corner of the eye. Curious now, Talent peered about further. He penetrated to the corner of the one unglassed window lighted but dimly, and there he let out a little choking gasp. For a moment he was rigid with horror. Then he smiled and all but laughed aloud. This explained everything. Some curious individual had seen this, and from his accounts had burgeoned the whole legend. The Carkers had indeed learned something from the Indians, but that secret was the art of embalming. It was a perfect mummy, 
Either the Indian art had shrunk bodies, or this was that of a ten-year-old boy. There was no flesh, only skin and bone and taut, dry stretches of tendon between. The eyelids were closed. The sockets looked hollow under them. The nose was sunken and almost lost. The scant lips were tightly curled back from the long and very white teeth, which stood forth all the more brilliantly against the deep brown skin. It was a curious little trove, this mummy. Talent was already calculating the chances for raising a decent sum of money from an interested anthropologist. Murder can produce such delightfully profitable chance byproducts. When he noticed the infinitesimal rise and fall of the chest, the carker was not dead. It was sleeping. Talent didn't dare to stop to think beyond the instant. This was no time to consider whether such things were possible in a well-ordered world. It was no time to reflect on the disposal of the body of Morgan. It was a time to snatch up your machete and get out of there. But in the doorway, he halted. There, coming across the desert, heading for the adobe clearly seen this time, was another, a female. He made an involuntary gesture of indecision. The blade of the machete clanged ringingly against the adobe wall. He heard the dry shuffling of a roused sleeper behind him. He turned fully now, the machete raised. Dispose of this nearer one first, then face the female. There was no room even for terror in his thoughts, only for action. The lean, brown shape darted at him avidly. He moved lightly away and stood poised for its second charge. It shot forward again. He took one step back, machete arm raised, and fell headlong over the corpse of Morgan. Before he could rise, the thin thing was upon him. Its sharp teeth had met through the palm of his left hand. The machete moved swiftly. The thin, dry body fell headless to the floor. There was no blood. The grip of the teeth did not relax. Pain coursed up Talon's left arm. A sharper, more bitter pain than you would expect from the bite, almost as though venom. He dropped the machete, and his strong white hand plucked and twisted at the brown, dry lips. The teeth stayed clenched, unrelaxing. He sat, bracing his back against the wall and gripped the head between his knees. He pulled. The flesh ripped and blood formed dusty clots on the dirt floor, but the bite was firm. His world had become reduced now to that hand and that head. Nothing outside mattered. He must free himself. He raised his aching arm to his face, and with his own teeth he tore at that unrelenting grip. The dry flesh crumbled away in desert dust, but the teeth were locked fast. He tore his lip against their white keenness and tasted in his mouth for the sweetness of blood and something else. He staggered to his feet again. He knew what he must do. Later he could use cautery, a tourniquet, see a doctor with a story about a Gila monster. Their heads gripped too, don't they? But he knew what he must do now. He raised the machete and struck again. His white hand lay on the brown floor, gripped by the white teeth in the brown face. He propped himself against the adobe wall, momentarily unable to move. 
his open wrist hung of the deeply hollowed stone, his blood and his strength and his life poured out before the little figure of sticks and clay. The female stood in the doorway now, the sun bright on her thin brownness. She did not move. He knew that she was waiting for the hollow stone to fill. Everybody dies, don't they? That was They Bite by Anthony Butcher. Now, you may notice at the beginning of the story, I introduced him as Anthony Boucher, as if he was a Frenchman. But in fact, when I've done my research, it said that he rhymed it with the voucher. And it wasn't his real name, it was his pen name. His real name was William Anthony Parker White, and apparently he was known as Tony, which seems a very reasonable choice. He was born in 1911 in Oakland, California, and died aged only 56, also in Oakland, of lung cancer. But he lived some life, you know. He graduated from Pasadena High in 1928 and went to the University of Southern California and then up to uh, Berkeley where he did his master's. Um, he was close to his grandfather, who was a steel worker from Glasgow and came over to the U.S., uh, free of passage because he promised to fight. I'm guessing for the Union side because he ended up in uh, the North. So apparently this grandfather was a bit of a rake, but um, young Tony was very attached to him. Sounds like me. I was very attached to my grandfather, who was not a bit of a rake. Um, Tony was um, a cup, got a cup. Stop calling him Tony. I got confused who I'm talking about. Butcher was a sickly child with asthma and other illnesses, so he stayed at home and read a lot, but he was very, very bright. When he went to university, he did uh, linguistics, and his uh, wife was the daughter of his German professor, so he did, including other languages, Sanskrit, so he's a very clever guy. Um, he became a professional writer. His first story was published at the age of 15. It was called Ye Olde Ghost Story. Uh, and when he looked back, he said he didn't think much of it, but we don't usually, when we look back at the stuff we wrote when we were 15. He translated Jorge Luis Borges from Spanish, obviously. But listen, I must do a Borges story because I'm a big fan of his work. Uh, but, you know, he was a smart guy. He's, he wrote mystery stories, detective stories, a lot of genre fiction. When he was doing his master's, apparently, he was a bit disgruntled or, you know, he commented on the fact his fellow students were looking down their nose at the popular fiction of his day. But they were looking, they were studying the popular fiction of a hundred years previously, so it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. But he wasn't snobby about it at all. He, he, he won an award for Nine Times Nine, which is said to be the best locked room mystery story of all time. So you can see in this that he was, he was a, you know, he wrote so many stories. He was a master of the form. And you can see how the story's put together, that he knew what he was talking about. He set up the magazine, he wrote science fiction as well. He set up the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and edited it from 1949 to 58. He had a writing class and there were a number of uh, future authors who were in his writing class, including Philip K. Dick, who was a, a crazy genius, who uh, you probably know him best for Blade Runner, which was his story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So Butcher was a really prominent and well-known figure in the, in the literary movements of his time. He also was a big sports fan. He had lots of interest. He was a keen poker player. He was a big fan of Sherlock Holmes and ran one of the societies of the, the old Sherlockians or something. He collected records of early operatic singers. He liked good food and good drink. 
And he was married to, as I said, the um, daughter of his German professor from a very early age. And they stayed together as far as I'm aware. So they bite this particular story was suggested by many people going back ages. So I won't name them all, but there's a number of people suggested it. And before I did it, I thought, well, given that it's in California, I'm probably going to have to do it in an American accent. And um, I watched a couple of videos on YouTube about how to do a Western accent. And I I picked some of it up, but I think um, it fades during the... And I go back to my standard American. I was reading about how some of the Western accents have that I to R, so Michael. But that's particularly a Southern thing. And they talk about the goose vowels, so I can't do it. Goose, spoon, goose, that kind of thing, which you don't get in the West anyway. I've mispronounced that anyway. So the story itself is pretty much a folk horror story before there was folk horror, but it's American folk horror. Although it does draw on, he talks about Sweeney Bean, Sweeney Bon, from who was a Gaelic cannibal from Galloway. And remember, Butcher's uh, granddad was a Scot. I thought that this story was similar in some ways to Samantha Hicks' story back along the old track, which we did. And of course, uh, Russell Kirk's story behind the stumps. And what you have is you have an out of the way place and there's some kind of monster that eats people usually lurking in uh, in in some cabin somewhere and i i'm not i'm not saying that the stories that the authors copied one from the other because i don't think they did because i think uh, butcher probably wrote it first then um kirk then samantha hicks in different decades but it, it, these are tropes aren't they and in a lot of the other folk horrors we we focus on the the local inhabitants who are usually halfwits. We don't get so much of that, but we get the bar interlude whereby he, he is, is the old man who, who functions as this, whose dog got eaten by the thing. We have the barman. I wasn't sure what, what the young man's job was. He, I mean, clearly his function in the story is to fill backstory. I suppose it's because the locals won't talk about it, so he, as a stranger, has that role. But I wonder if he couldn't have got away with the old man or at least the bartender spilling the beans because the bartender spills half the beans, doesn't he? So I don't know why he's got those people in, but listen, this guy wrote a ton of stories so he knew what he was talking about and I'm possibly missing the point here as I sometimes do. And one of the great things about the podcast and the YouTube channel is that people can come back at me and go, ah, you know, there's this. And I go, aha, of course, that's what it was. It's in many, in many um, mystery stories, we have an unreliable narrator. So basically the, the protagonist turns out to be a scoundrel and we're not let into that at the beginning. We're given hints, of course. The first thing is, what is he doing in all those rocks, the dry rocks with the binoculars and notebook? When Morgan comes and hints at the Chinese incident, it's something like what I think it is, is he's kind of spying and he's going to sell the secrets or what he observes to whoever bids, and that could be the Russians or the Chinese, I think they mention. Um, so he's a kind of a bit of a scoundrel, really, isn't he? And we, it's already established that he has no real, you know, if he's going to do this. And then he has the dream after the young man where he's kind of accused in highfalutin language of being a narcissist. And therefore, that lets us into when he does murder Morgan, we are not massively surprised that he turns out to be a murderer. Um, And at one point, he talks about the carcass story and he uses the word his blackmail plot. I'm not sure who he's going to blackmail and how that fits in with the carcass, actually, Um, because there is no blackmail in the story, as it turns out, and whether he's going to blackmail Morgan before he decided to kill him. But I don't see that. And I don't see how 
his observations of the glider training school, which would be good espionage stuff, um, are going to work for blackmail. So I don't see that, unless he thought he was just going to set himself up in the, in the cabin. So he's a bit of a scoundrel. And of course, we remember that horror stories usually have a sin. So this guy's got tons of sins, the big one being murder. And it is murder and arrogance. So he doesn't take these things seriously. That is a big fault in a lot of horror stories where they're given genuine warnings about the supernatural and they are too narcissistic and too full of their own importance and superiority to think that they are actually themselves at threat. And this is what happens here. So he's a murderer and a narcissist. Those are at least two sins. He's probably got a lot more. And he goes thinking, aha, this is absolutely fantastic. I'll go in this Adobe Photoshop. I only know how to say Adobe Photoshop, Adobe, because it's not a word we use in British English, apart from Adobe Photoshop and Adobe Lightbox and all that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, hopefully I got it right. And there isn't actually a secret Southwestern or Western US pronunciation that's a doe. I don't know. Let's not even go there. And then he starts saying, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to do the carcass again. I'm going to blame these stupid peasants. And then he sees the desiccated corpse, as he thinks, of a carcass. And it ain't no corpse because it's still breathing. And it's a horrible little monstrosity that it's related to. These are kind of ogres. I think, he, I think the suggestion is that these things have parasitized, parasitized on humans, eaten them basically for many, many times. They're related to the trolls, aren't they? The ogres, they fee fi fo for me, even talks about that and makes that linkage. So these are some kind of monstrous things that uh, feed off us in out-of-the-way places. And this is a really ancient, tapping into a really ancient a belief, a fear belief of lonely places that we have as a species. Um, and then we have a bit of body horror, i.e. chops his um, own wrist off. We're like, ah, oh. I remember there was that guy, the story of a guy got stuck in the Grand Canyon, a climber, and his arm got stuck under a boulder. And he thought, well, I'm going to die if I stay here. So he chopped his arm. I didn't gnaw through it. I think he chopped it off. I hope he chopped it off. We wouldn't like to gnaw through your own arm. That would be very unpleasant. I think it's unpleasant chopping your own arm, but to be fair. But, uh, and then, and then the, the, you know, the female carker is like, she is such a connoisseur. She isn't just going to eat him. I mean, they ate the dog, poor old Tigger, Jigger. Now, don't send any complaints about that. I didn't even write this story, but somebody will comment, I abhor blah, 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 violence to doggy wuggles. Me too. I mean, I'm a big dog lover, as if you listen, you'll know that. Um, but this, the, Jigger didn't exist. Believe me, Jigger never existed and certainly never got eaten by an ogre in some kind of bar in the desert part of California in 1930-odd. It never happened. So don't, don't, just don't lose sleep about that, really. Just calm your, calm your box. Chill your box, as they say, um, as some people say anyway. Uh, anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah, I was struck by the, the, the dryness of the monster. I think, for me, living in a very wet place... My monsters tend to be squidgy. They have slugs, they have uh, slimy things. But there's a lot of moisture involved. Whereas, I guess if you're from California, which is a dry place. I remember we went to California, and the guy, when we were there, said it hadn't, ra hadn't rained. I think it's rained since. hadn't rained for years. I'm like, what? I mean, we go like three days, it doesn't rain. We're like, what's going on? It's a drought. Uh, and then we have to put emergency hose pad bands in place because it hasn't rained for a week. But yeah, so I think it just shows you're conditioned or well, your imagination is formed by where you are. So their monsters are dry. It's also like the Vikings. 
the Vikings' hell is a cold place, whereas the uh, Jewish, Judeo-Christian hell, which is, comes from the Middle East, is a hot place. So, you know, I said, that's a very interesting thought, isn't it? We could, I'm sure somebody's written a thesis or two about that. Keeps them in work. I often wonder about academics, you know. They just kind of write, write long bits of words arguing with each other. It keeps them in work. Let's face it. it. I mean, I'm not against anybody having a job. Why not? Then what? Yeah, we went to San Francisco. We went to LA and it was warm. I was very into Californication. You know, um, David Duchovny, who was in, of course, the X-Files as well. He was, I don't want you to think badly of me because he was a bit of a scoundrel. But when I, uh, in my 40s, when I, my, my wife split up and uh, I was, this was on the TV. And what's her name? Um, oh, McElhone, his wife, who was a great beauty, uh, to me anyway. Um, I thought, yeah, I would love his life. I'd, probably not. But, uh, and he lived in Venice. I've told you the story in this, how I got, I got a ring with dolphins on it in Venice, Italy. And then that's where I got it. And then some years later, lost it in the ocean at Venice Beach, California. So it went from Venice to Venice. And I thought that was spooky. But, you know, it's just because I'm weak minded. So I went to California with my daughters and we ended up in San Francisco, which was very gothic. It was, well, it was dark a lot of the time. And there was a guy playing a saxophone on a thing. And it was just like something out of Batman. Um, and uh, it was foggy and cold. And I'm like, what? This is California. I'm freezing. And I didn't have any hot clothes. So we spent all our time in San Francisco freezing. And then we went outside the city to San Diego to the Rosicrucian Museum. It was red hot. And then we got, we went across Golden Gate Bridge on a bus. And we didn't totally understand, not because we didn't speak the language, but we didn't understand it, or I didn't. And we went over the bridge and it was freezing cold and windy. And we hadn't, we just stayed on the bridge because we thought it's so cold, we're just going to come back again. But that bus then went to Sausalito and you were supposed to have paid extra. And I, we didn't have any more money. And I'm like, oh, what are we going to do? And I only realized when we get to the place, so we get to Sausalito and have an ice cream. It's red hot there. And we come back again. So I'm really, don't, don't think bad of me, but we got a bit of a trip for nothing. Anyway, that's about it. I'm running behind with the podcast. Usually I have a few weeks in the can, as they say, but I'm, I'm actually doing a week at a time and we're going away camping, Sheila and I, in June to Wales. And I need to get a few recorded so I don't have to actually do them from the tent. That would be really difficult. I could do it. I've got a Zoom thing. I could record it, but no, 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 no. When I'm camping, I just want to camp. Okay, so uh, this is going to go in the can now. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications when I do new stories. Remember to spread the word and we will grow like a mighty engine. I don't think engines grow. Anyway, I've got to get going. I've got to record this. I've got to edit it. Hope you're all well. Bye. And thanks for all your support, by the way. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?